On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the March 2015 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Rami Dukey, Professor of Medicine, Interim Division Chair at Stroger Cook County Hospital, and from also the Division of Cardiology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. He'll be discussing his article, The Prognostic Value of Undetectable, Highly Sensitive Cardiac Troponin Eye in Patients with Acute Pulmonary Embolism. Rami, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also on the line with us is Dr. Lisa Moores, Associate Dean for Student Affairs and Professor of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences at the F. Edward Ebayer School of Medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. She'll be discussing her accompanying editorial, Should They Stay or Should They Go? Identification of Low-Risk Patients with Acute Pulmonary Embolism Who Can Be Safely Treated Outside of the Hospital. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys. So um, let's let's make sure that all our listeners are on the kind of the same page before we go diving into the work here. Um, give us some quick background. The association between cardiac troponins, not not necessarily the highly sensitive ones, just kind of you know generically, if you will, and adverse outcomes for PEs. It, obviously, surrogate for RV strain and, and obviously all the associated bad outcomes. Could you just lay some groundwork for us? So and and why uh, you know. Why do we care and, and why you, you then wanted to dive deeper in, in, in what you perceive to be the problem with the, the current state of the, of the test? This question for me, I assume? Sure. You, get, you guys fight it out. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. Very good. Uh, so, uh, so as we all know, uh, pulmonary, acute pulmonary embolism would, uh, would, would uh, impose an acute uh, uh, rise in the uh, uh, right ventricular uh, afterload uh, might lead to uh, right ventricular uh, dilatation, uh, right ventricular dilatation increase or right ventricular myocardial oxygen consumption. And uh, in patients with uh, with such acute pulmonary embolism, often that will manifest as uh, as myocardial ischemia. We see it often on EKG by acute uh, changes in EKG, such as right bundle, uh, T-wave abnormality, uh, on echocardiography by RV dilatation, RV dysfunction, on CT scan by RV dilatation as well. And certainly in, as a biomarker, cardiac troponin is a fantastic uh, sensitive uh, test for uh, myocardial uh, ischemia. Um, so in a way, uh, cardiac troponin is a is a, is a surrogate for right ventricular uh, uh, ischemia in uh, the case of acute pulmonary embolism. Uh, this has been shown for you know for more than a decade now that it is a is a poor prognostic indicator. Um, uh, cardiac troponin assays have been uh, improving uh, over over the, the years, and we have uh, more and more sensitive and more accurate uh, troponin uh, assays uh, that uh, we could be leveraged. In, um, in um, uh, acute pulmonary embolism, certainly in the triage of acute pulmonary embolism, which is the focus of this particular uh, paper. Right, and that's ultimately that's that's what I wanted to to, to then as an intro to your paper. This isn't obviously about diagnosing uh, uh, the the PE itself, but it is trying to help prognosticate, and then and ultimately it seems between the the two articles, uh, help helping us uh, triage the idea of sending someone home. Yeah, and, exactly. and I, I would agree, Kyle. I think part of what Rami mentioned, too, that I think is important is when you look at all of the early work in the prognosis, short-term and even intermediate-term in acute PE, 
it all focuses on, on the right ventricle, and initially, really, the only tool we had for that, um, at least in many of the early studies, was echocardiography, and yet there's a lot of um, subjectivity in that and a lot of disagreement over what the definition should be for RV overload, RV strain, and where those cutoffs should, should be placed in terms of prognosis, and therefore the biomarkers are, are very um, appealing in that they may be a much easier way to, um, to help us triage the patients. Definitely. So, Robbie, what did, what did you guys find? Why don't you share some of the results from your article and, and you know, where, where you went with this and then uh, fill in our listeners. Certainly. Uh, well, we uh, kind of had the observation that, uh, that patients who have undetectable cardiac troponin in our laboratory, in our institution at uh, Stroger Hospital of Cook County, uh, rarely get into trouble. And uh, we thought we could uh, certainly leverage that uh, in, an, in a study officially or formally investigating uh, undetectable cardiac troponin as a, as a prognostic tool. So we went back for five years, uh, consecutive patients who've been uh, had a discharge diagnosis of acute pulmonary embolism. Uh, we sifted through them. We made, uh, we eliminated the people who had, uh, for example, chronic pulmonary embolism and, and variety of conditions. So we had a, a pure cohort of uh, 350 patients who have uh, confirmed pulmonary embolism uh, by the mean of uh, uh, car, uh, pulmon, uh, chest CTA or um, uh, VQ scan um, uh, or um, invasive uh, pulmonary angiography. Uh, we looked into these, and uh, about 85% of them had a uh, cardiac troponin measured within the 24 hours, of, uh, within 24 hours from the diagnosis of acute pulmonary embolism. Uh, we uh, we followed these patients. Actually, we we did very detailed uh, chart review, looking at adverse events, uh, not in terms of what had happened or not, when it happened in terms of hours and minutes. So we could trace the patients, uh, you know, whether the event happened. Um, uh, in hours and minutes following uh, the troponin assay, um, we looked into uh, major adverse events, uh, which is basically in-hospital uh, death, uh, thrombolytic therapy, um, uh, or uh, CPR, or a, a cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Uh, we use thrombolytic therapy as in kind of a, 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 a surrogate for escalation of care, uh, and since it also uh, conceivably could save lives, uh, we, we used it as a surrogate for uh, uh, severe or um, uh, hard adverse events. We looked at soft events such as ICU admission or uh, inferior vena cava uh, filter placement, again, as a surrogate of uh, uh, escalation of care. Um, we, um, and um, indeed, patients who have uh, uh, cardiac uh, troponin uh, elevation, they tend to be uh, sicker uh, in all respects in uh, the typical clinical measures of, uh, of uh, sickness in the, uh, with acute pulmonary embolism, uh, such as having uh, lower uh, oxygen saturation, uh, they're slightly older, uh, they tend to have a higher uh, PESI score. Uh, so PESI score is an invasive uh, uh, composite uh, score uh, looking at variety of, uh, of the clinical predictors. Uh, it's called the, the full name of that, uh, pulmonary embolism severity index, uh, or PESI score. Uh, so patients who have troponin elevation, they have higher uh, PESI score as well. 
Um, and uh, we, uh, we, we follow these patients for soft and hard adverse events. Uh, to our uh, uh, surprise, uh, to some extent, uh, that patients who have no detectable uh, cardiac troponins in 24 hours, uh, within 24 hours uh, following acute pulmonary embolism diagnosis had no adverse event, no hard events, uh, such as death or uh, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation uh, or uh, thrombolytic therapy administration. Uh, patients, who, uh, patients who have uh, elevated cardiac troponin or detectable cardiac troponin have uh, obviously much higher rate of these events. Uh, also, patients who have uh, undetectable uh, cardiac troponin have lower events of soft uh, adverse events such as ICU admission or um, IVC filter placement. Uh, they, had, uh, they had events, however, they were much fewer uh, than, uh, uh, than patients who have detectable uh, cardiac troponin. Uh, this, uh, you know, this uh, prognostic value of cardiac troponin um, not, not only was present in patients who have, in the entire cohort, but also in patients whether we look at high risk clinical risk uh, or high clinical risk, such as you know, high PESI score or low PESI score. So whether you are high risk, low risk, uh, detectable cardiac troponin predicts, predicts higher rates of events. Undetectable troponin predicts very low rate actually, or actually in our case, we did not detect a single uh, hard event of death, CPR, or uh, lytic therapy. Lisa, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, this study was very interesting to me, um, independent of the actual um, troponin assay, because I agree with Rami, it's nice if we're getting more sensitive tests. But as you look at it and you look at the body of literature on risk stratification in patients with acute PE, this is very consistent in that markers of, of RV dysfunction, particularly the biomarkers, tend to have a very good negative predictive value. Um, their positive predictive value, not so great. So, you know, using them to potentially identify a group of patients that might warrant um, lytic ther therapy right up front, I don't think we're there. But they are very helpful in identifying that group of patients that is very unlikely to have any adverse uh, outcomes in the first 10 or even 30 days, depending on the study that you look at. And certainly given uh, the new anticoagulants and the ability to now treat these patients um, you know, completely with oral therapy, it would be very appealing to not admit these patients to the hospital. So if we can find a very safe way to identify those low-risk patients, I think we improve patient satisfaction, we, you know, we reduce healthcare costs, um, and I, that's something that I believe is very exciting. I think when, when you're looking at the management of patients with PE, we're really moving towards a more individualized approach as opposed to, you know, a straight disease approach. You've got a PE and there's only one way to manage it. Let me, let me ask you guys both a quick uh, kind of bare bones question. And recognizing, as, as Rami pointed out in the article, you know, it's single center and it's retrospective, though it's still a, a, a really excellent study. But if people were wanting to start to, you know, in their, in their own kind of algorithms within their hospital or within how they manage patients and they were wanting to incorporate this, how does one assure that your medical center is using something similar to the highly sensitive cardiac troponin assay that, that Rami's group used versus an older assay and so then the negative predictive value is not necessarily as pertinent as his group is demonstrating? You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Kyle, because honestly, because they, the older assays are are less sensitive, you're right, you may miss some patients that have a small degree of ischemia. Um, 
So uh, just like we, we learned in patients with, you know, perhaps even the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism and looking at uh, D-dimer assays, one of the very key things in incorporating them into your diagnostic algorithm is understanding what type of assay your hospital is using for the D-dimer. Is it an ELISA? Is it a semi-quantitative? Or is it a purely qualitative? And that is key in how you can incorporate it. So, um, you know, I don't know how Romney's hospital does it, but I think in most places you really need to ask your lab what specific assay are you using and what is the sensitivity. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I mean, there are so many troponin assays uh, that you really cannot, uh, you cannot interpolate the finding of one study into another hospital using a very different assay. The, the assay we use here is fairly sensitive. What's actually exciting, there are more sensitive assays, high, what's, what's now branded as high-sensitivity cardiac troponin. Uh, I make the distinction from highly sensitive cardiac troponin. Uh, there are four assays now in the market um, um, that are even higher sensitivity than the one we use uh, we use in this particular study and with higher precision as well, meaning if you repeat the test, you'll get similar results. Um, I suspect these type of assays would be actually provide even higher fidelity, probably better negative predictive value. Uh, obviously, the work has to be done to demonstrate that, uh, but I suspect will be actually more useful in ruling out um, hemodynamically significant pulmonary embolism or maybe better identify patients who are truly at low risk who could be discharged home and treated uh, medically. Yeah, I would agree. So where do we go next then? Um, is this something, you know, besides obviously further validation and, and maybe doing it uh, prospectively with one of these even the newer assays, um, you know, incorporating this into someone's clinical algorithms or thinking about it into a, in the confines of a PESI score, um, you know, is this something that I'm going to get if I walk into your ER tomorrow, you know, complaining of, and then you find out I have a PE? You know, where are we with this? I would love to, to even throw that at Rami as well, um, because I think something that I noticed in his study, which was similar to something that um, my group, along with David Jimenez, has done in the past, and it's, it's looking at risk stratification tools. And one of the consistent things we find is that a combination of tools is, is always better than a single one. So obviously you're not going to use a, even if it's a high sensitive, you're not going to use a troponin level in and of itself to uh, risk stratify these patients. But when you put it in combination with things like the PESI score or imaging of the RV um, or the EKG, then you see that the incremental or the discriminatory power goes up. Although looking at um, um, figure three from Rami's article, what you'll see is both in hard events and, so and soft events that there is an incremental value to adding the troponin assay. It seems like you get a bigger bang for that on top of the PESI than you do for RV imaging, and you almost wonder, could you get away with, you know, a, a, a simplified PESI of zero or a full PESI score of uh, risk group one and a negative, highly sensitive assay and say those two in and of themselves might be enough and you could identify a group that at a minimum would have a very short hospital stay if not be treated entirely as outpatients. I, uh, I tend to agree. Uh, tend to agree with that. Um, I think a combination, always uh, leveraging the Bayes theorem uh, to our advantage by by having uh, some sort of combination of markers. Uh, clinical markers always have to be there. I mean, you you know you just cannot uh, you cannot uh, n not consider patients' clinical condition into in, you know you have to take that into account, obviously. 
you know, I think leveraging troponin in, in addition to that would be, uh, I, I think, will be uh, will be tremendous. I, I, whether whether echo or EKG, EKG is a given. Everybody's going to get an EKG. Whether an echo would be an added has an additive value to cardiac troponin, um, I, I I don't know uh, about that. Uh, and in our study, in our particular study, it didn't, uh, but it, it it may still have some additive value. Uh, the nice thing about troponin is you can get it any time. You can get it in the middle of the night. Um, discharging patients straight up from the emergency room based on cardiac troponin, I think it's way premature. Certainly, the study would not justify it. This is a uh, hopefully a, a beginning of uh, of more uh, uh, more literature to come. Um, we uh, where we implemented in the in the pathway, I would suspect it would be best applied to people who have low clinical risk, have a negative troponin. Maybe they could be discharged after a short observation. Um, I personally, you know. Uh, I do not feel comfortable just uh, sending patient home straight up from the emergency room uh, based on a negative troponin. Maybe a 24-hour observation um, in this case might be reasonable uh, as we gather more information and really figure out um, uh, who will get into trouble in the ensuing few days. Yeah, and you wonder too, Rami, if, if even, you know, the next question to ask might also be to look at that group um, that has the very low risk PESI and the negative troponin and just a short, you know, 24-hour observation. But then also perhaps look at the group that comes in with, um, you know, an intermediate risk PESI or maybe, you know, one point on the simplified PESI. Would a, um, you know, a protocol that allowed for serial measurement of the troponin, so if it's, you know, negative right. on admission, but then you check it again in 24 hours and it remains normal, that group may be, have declared themselves very low risk as opposed to if it's starting to rise. And I think we might see a, um, a use for that in the future as well. Indeed. Uh, in our particular study, actually, we looked into uh, into uh, repeat troponin, people who have multiple troponin assays. And in our particular study, did not pan out to be useful. Uh, and that, not to say that this may may have value. This is something certainly worth looking into, uh, because in our in our study, when when the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism was made, a lot of patients did not get serial uh, troponin. Uh, uh, assays, uh, but looking into into repeat measurements, maybe a trend up, um, you know, could could add could add some value the same way it does in acute coronary syndrome. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too well, we've seen that the PESI, if it's changing over time, also has some prognostic information. So you know, it may not be just the troponin, but rechecking some of these markers at 24 hours in that intermediate risk group. Definitely. Robin, one other thought or one other question. Um, the in your original cohort, um, there were obviously a, a not trivial amount of patients who had cancers, but then ultimately didn't have troponins. Your group did an analysis, though, of, of you know what would have your outcomes been if you had assumed positive tropes or negative tropes on on all this group. Could you expand on that for everybody? Uh, yes, uh, certainly. Since this is an observational, retrospective observational study, right? Uh, right. We so could you're not be sure. That if, absolutely, <laughs> we get we get what they have. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have actually 85% of people to have troponin, uh, but still 15% of patients did not. Uh, so obviously, we, there is no way for us to know uh, how these patients would have done given if they have a positive or negative troponin. So we did what you know sensitivity analysis two ways. You know, considering two extreme scenarios. One, that all these patients have positive troponin, 
and where their outcome would have been, and all these patients have negative troponin and what the outcome would have been. Uh, adding these patients, assuming all positive or all negative troponin scenarios uh, to the cohort would not have changed the overall uh, prognostic value of a troponin, uh, meaning tr having a, a detectable troponin versus undetectable troponin still predicts uh, high event rates. Um, however, what we do not know if, if the, the event rate would remain zero or the hard event rate would have remained zero, this is unknowable because we really don't know what uh, these, uh, the troponin uh, level right. of these patients. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you always worry about is certainly in the original studies looking at the derivation of different prognostic scores in patients with QPE, an active malignancy is often one of those factors that is associated with a uh, a worse short-term outcome, and it may be related to the cancer, it may be related to the PE, it may be a synergistic effect between the two, and so it's hard to to generalize that to that group of patients when, right. you know, they really weren't looked at in this setting. I agree. Right. And, it goes, and it goes back to what you were saying, too, in that a group with a higher PESI score, but wondering how, you know, maybe a shorter observation if you knew they had a negative trope, you know, being able to do that study and say, hey, maybe we don't have to worry as much about this group in the right biomarker setting. Right, right. Correct. It, all, it also makes me wonder, too, because you pointed out, Rami, that some of these were the uh, so-called incidental PE found. You know, it was a follow-up CT scan done, you know, to follow-up response to chemo. Oh, and by the way, you have a PE. Um, you know, I'm very curious, and that, it would, I mean, it's a shame we don't have the data. It would be very curious in that kind of a group where there wasn't even a complaint going on and, and the incidental embolism found, uh, you know, what kind of uh, score would be going on and what kind of trope levels. Yeah, uh, this is certainly a very, uh, a very curious situation here. That's uh, you know these patients found with incidental PEs, and that's uh, I don't believe that is uh, totally unusual in patients who have, for example, colorectal cancers. And a lot of times they have so many complaints where uh, sure you know they forget about uh, uh, cardiopulmonary symptoms. Yeah. So um, I. I, I want to be respectful of everybody's time, but I also want to make sure that there's nothing we're missing um, or that we needed to expand upon. Um, you know, for our listeners, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great article to read, and, and I definitely want to also compliment uh, Lisa's accompanying editorial. It, it, it really helps, I think, frame the, the discussion here. And, I, and it seemed to me, Rami, that you, you guys have, you know, really, uh, you know, jumped into an area that, that is, is ripe for further exploration and, and collaboration with a lot of different groups. Uh, that's that's what we feel as well, and actually we're going to put this to test uh, in a prospective uh, cohort uh, and trying to come up with an algorithm uh, of uh, patients triage, uh, low-risk patients who have uh, negative uh, troponin and uh, conceivably consider discharging them um, uh, early on and follow, and follow these patients uh, uh, long-term for, uh, for delayed events. Uh, this is something actually in the planning. Yeah, I think Fantastic. that's a great step forward, and I, and I think the only other thing I would I would say to readers when you're looking at this um, this general area of risk stratification in acute PE, it can sometimes be a little bit confusing because there are you know the two ends of the spectrum. We absolutely want to identify a low risk group of patients who could be treated for a very short stay in the hospital, or or I really believe we're not far off from being able to treat these patients completely as outpatients, and I, I guess I'm being swayed by the fact that when you think about the number of patients with DVT that actually also have silent PE that are never even looked for, 
and yet right. we treat them as outpatients. So I think there is a group that can be treated that way, and I would love to get there. Um, but then you've got the other end of the spectrum with the, you know, the high risk and uh, certainly the more recent studies suggesting there probably is a group of patients that benefits from more aggressive therapy and, and, and you know, consideration of primary reperfusion right up front. And can we do a better job of that? And all of these tools that we have out there work differently in those different populations, and I think it's important for people to understand that. It depends on what you're trying to identify, and just because we have a pulmonary embolism severity index, that risk score may be better for identifying low risk and lose its discriminatory power in the high risk. And you may see other prognostic scores coming out that are better in intermediate and high-risk patients. So I think it's a little confusing, but it's just important to remember those two ends of the spectrum that we're trying to sort out. Very well put. Agree. Absolutely. Rami, any other final thoughts? Um, I think uh, I think uh, it's I think we co we covered everything. Um, um, what I want to always uh, uh, remind the listeners and the readers that um, uh, this is a single center study, and it's uh, when when you have an event rate of zero in any study, always. Uh, be extra cautious, and uh, nothing in life is zero. Um, uh, <laughs> it's too good to be true. Uh, however, it's certainly encouraging. Uh, we uh, we uh, we need to explore this further. We need to play it. Uh, we need to play it uh, uh, in real time. We play it forward in a way that we actually uh, implement a protocol where we discharge the patient and observe um, uh, their event rates. Uh, and at that point, we will be at a, at a level where we can say confidently that uh, this is something that we can be implemented into every uh, day practice. Well said. Perfect. Right. Guys, thanks so much for your time. Um, Thank you very Lisa, much. I, I, I didn't know if you had a, another. A, your 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 point prior was, I, I think, such a perfect closing point. So I didn't. No, no, I, I didn't want to. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, both of you, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a fantastic discussion, as always. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks.